HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is presented by Irving Bottle and the Brooklyn Kitchen. This week, it's the season finale of Meet and Three. We're following up our episode about youth with a look at age and how aging affects life on farms and in kitchens. At the, the most basic level, we need people to grow food for a growing global population. The question of planning for retirement or old age as a cook It's almost one that doesn't exist bizarrely until it's too late. We also have a story about a food that might be older than you think. A recent archaeological finding might have crossfitters everywhere reevaluating their diets. Plus, a story about one of Atlanta's most historic and risque landmarks. There are dancers that have been there 20 and 30 years. Don't miss our season finale of Meat and Three, available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Great Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Roger Trinquero. We'll talk California wines, the birth of White Zinfandel, and Trinquero wines. I'm your host, Sam Ruby. Stay with us for The Great Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Roger Trinquero is chairman of the board of Trinquero Family Estates. Roger started his career at the family winery, Sutter Home Winery, in 1972. Roger oversaw sales and marketing while his brother Bob oversaw winemaking. Roger and Bob pioneered White Zinfandel, and the rest, as they say, is history. Sutter Home became the top-selling premium varietal brand in the U.S. and a true industry success story. Roger also launched the family's flagship luxury portfolio, Trinquero Napa Valley. Welcome to the Great Nation, Roger. Thank you. Roger, thanks for joining us. I just want everyone to know that we are talking to Roger in New York City. He's in town doing a bunch of things, which we'll get to. Um, But Roger, first, I want to give everyone an idea um, of who you are, where you came from. So I think it's important to talk about the history 
and the impact the Trincaro family has had on wine in California and in the U.S. And then I want you to talk about the evolution of Trincaro family estates. That sounds fun. So this, this could take forever. We don't have forever. <laughs> so you have to be somewhat succinct. But assume people don't know everything. So just give us a little history. Okay. Well, uh, actually, our history starts in, uh, in the Asti region of uh, Italy. Okay. Uh, my father was born just outside of Asti in a little town called San Marzanotto di Asti. And my grandfather had a vineyard there. And uh, after a couple of years of severe hail, the vineyard was destroyed. And my, uh, my, my grandfather moved the family to, uh, to the coast on, in Savona and opened up a trattoria where he, where he made wine for the guests. And... Uh, and uh, they, they ran the business there. Well, as time passed, uh, work in Italy was hard to find, and the family went other other areas in France and, and other places in Europe to find work. And then uh, my aunt, my, my father's oldest sister, she came to the U.S. and slowly began bringing the rest of the family over. So my father came over in uh, 1923. He came through Ellis Island with his younger brother, and uh, they set up shop, do, you know, working here in New York, in New York City. Uh, my father worked in the food service business. He was a waiter initially, and then he uh, he became a uh, bartender, and uh, actually started making some pretty decent money back in those days. He met my mother in New York, who was was. Uh, working for the Renzoni Macaroni Factory right. at the time. Renzoni Sonaboni. Yeah, exactly. And uh, they got married in 1935, and my brother was born in 1936. And uh, and then my sister in 38, and then I came along as sort of the, the accident of the family in 1946, which uh, was about a year before my uncle, who was a winemaker in Patterson, New Jersey, the, the uh, birthplace of wine. Yeah, and uh, back in those days, they, they they would go out to California, buy grapes, and then put them on a train, train them back to Patterson, make the wine. Well, he was on out on, on a on a grape buying trip in California, and he saw this old abandoned winery that was for sale. Wow! And he talked a friend of his into into buying the winery, and as soon as the friend saw what he bought. What, his, what my uncle convinced him to buy, he, he wanted out of the deal right away. <laughs> so my uncle convinced my dad to move his our family out to California and to to buy into this to this project. How old were you? I was two. At oh, the time. okay. So, you had so no I don't remember much. On, right? My brother was twelve, and he remembers a lot. We came out to California. My dad came out in late '47, and then we joined him in '48. And uh, initially, it was pretty pretty darn rough on the family. Uh, my mother uh, couldn't believe we had a nice apartment on 66 in Central Park West, <laughs> and here my dad moves us out there. And, and for the first six months, we lived in a two bedroom cabin with no uh, indoor toilet. Oh boy. And she had three kids, and uh, my dad and her, and uh, she uh, she uh, my brother recalls. Uh, um, she told, asked my father, said, why didn't you tell me this is what I was coming to? And he said, if I, t if I would have told you, you wouldn't have come. 
So anyway, uh, they stuck it out. And during the early years, um, you know, we, we just sold wine in the local area of the surrounding counties. And, so you uh, had the property? You oh, had estate grapes. You uh, had the no, winemaking facility. No we had no grapes. We had no grapes. You All contracted we had was grapes. We, we bought grapes from okay. local growers, made the wine, and then and then um, and then sold it in the immediate area. Uh, growing up, I actually grew up in the winery. The winery was kind of my playground. Right. It was. It had been abandoned since Prohibition, uh, so the tanks were were dried up. My uncle and dad you know would had to had to steam the tanks to get them to hold again and then uh we had dirt floors back then and uh it was uh it was quite a quite a chore uh, a lot of people ask us why we we took the name Sutter home and uh there was a very simple answer to that when they bought the winery the Sutter home was painted on the roof in big large letters and my dad and uncle didn't have the money to repaint the roof, so they said, well, I guess we're going to call it Sutter Home. I've seen pictures. Yeah. Um, now, what was Sutter Home? Was that the name of the previous winery, or was right. it a different business? It that was, was, that that was, was the a previous, previous winery. winery. <clears throat> Initially, it was built in 1874 as the John Toman Winery, and then uh, a member of the Sutter family uh, uh, bought, bought, the, uh, bought the property, and then Sutter... The Sutter brothers, who had a winery in uh, in the foothills, moved their operation there, and then they had a uh, bottling and distilling area in San Francisco. Right. Were there other families making wine? I mean, I know the answer is yes, but were there a lot? Did you yeah. notice them, when or we got, was it a small group of people? When we got to the valley, uh, my brother recalls that there was probably about fifteen operating wineries in the valley. You know, today there's almost five hundred. Right. So. You can imagine the the kind of growth that's occurred in the last seventy years. Crazy. But uh, uh, yeah, back then it was it was basic uh, fa- you know family ownership. Uh, a lot of whom are no longer in the business, sadly to say. Right. Uh, but we I don't know through sheer um, hard headedness, Italian hard headedness, uh, we stuck it out. And uh, over the years, uh, you know, we began to to uh, to improve our business and. Uh, so give, give me the ramp up. So the family gets there, literally dirt floors, <laughs> right. contracting grapes. When do things start changing? I mean, do you start buying property and growing grapes? I mean, just give me a quick. Okay, uh, quick, quickly speaking, in 1960, my uncle wanted to retire, so my dad bought him out of the winery. So at that time, my brother had just gotten out of the service, and he was working in the winery. He took over as the winemaker. Well, uh so 60 was an important so, so, year. So 60 was the important year. That's when my brother took over as winemaker. I, at the time, was in high school, encouraged to go to college because the winery couldn't afford another mouth to feed. Now, did anyone else ever go to college? Uh, I was the only you one. You were the only one. Yeah, I was the only one. And my brother was a self-taught winemaker. He learned a lot from my uncle, but he also took classes at Davis. And uh, he, uh, during the late 60s, the great prices in Cal- in Napa Valley were starting to get out of our reach in terms of what we could afford to put in the bottle. So Bob looked for other areas in California that he could uh, access grapes, and he found this vineyard up in Amador County called the Deaver Vineyard. And he tasted some wines that were made from this by a home winemaker, and he said, we can make some fantastic wine with these grapes. So he made what would now become our first Amador County Zinfandel in 1968 Deaver Vineyard. 
It was made in a Cabernet style. Up until then, Zinfandel had always been a blending right. grape. And, or or the backbone of Hardy Burgundy, right. you know. It wasn't a featured thing. And uh, so he, he featured it, and suddenly we got notoriety for this wine. And, so that was uh, the first wine that, was that the, got... That got us any kind of notoriety right. outside of, you know, people coming to the winery, right. really. Commodity wine. Right, exactly. So um, as time progressed, we decided to start to specialize in Zinfandel. And we were making different styles of Zinfandel. We made Zinfandel Rosé. We made uh, a Zinfandel Nuovo, you know, like a Nouveau uh, style. And then uh, in 1972, Bob, my brother, was trying to make a very heavy, full-bodied red. So he decided to use what is called the Saunier process, removing some free-run juice. S-A-I-G-N-E, Saunier, French word. It means blood, right? right, bleeding, bleeding. So he, we bled off some free-run juice. To What it, that did was increase the skin-to-juice ratio of the red must and created a much heavier, very full-bodied red. Well, we were left over with this clear juice. We had about 1,000 gallons of it. We weren't sure what we were going to do with it, but, but we certainly didn't throw anything away at that time. So what we did is my, my brother fermented it, we put it in barrels, and we decided, well, well, we'll think of something to do with it later. So 1973 this was. This was 72. 72. Yeah. So you're going to finish the story, but this is a year that changed the wine world. It's, it changed us, our wine world, for Well, sure. I, I yeah. think beyond you, too. Yeah. So what happens? Well, what The happened? wine's in the... Uh... The wine's in the barrels, and a, and a retailer friend of ours, Daryl Cordy out of Sacramento, who is very, mu- very much in, into wines... Um, he came and he, and he tasted the wine. He said, this is very unique. He said, why don't you bottle it up and I'll buy half of the production and call it Eau de Patrie, which means Eye of the Partridge in French. And we said, we'll, we'll call it anything you want if you buy half of it. Right. So, so we did. And back then I was the compliance department. So I developed the label. I sent it off to the then the BATF for label approval. They sent it back and they said, no, this implies a foreign origin. You have to put an English descriptor on there. So I said, okay, well, what, it's Zinfandel. It's white. We'll call it white Zinfandel. So I did. I sent it back. Just and, and they approved at the it. moment, off the top right, of your head? Right. Well, we said it, it, we had to describe what it was, and that's what it was. So, right. So we did, and... Uh, Daryl bought half the production. We sold the rest in the tasting room. And then in 1973, we didn't make it because uh, the grapes, uh, the red grapes that year were very intense. We didn't need to use the Saunier process. And during that time, people came back and said, you ought to make that white Zinfandel again. So in 74, we did. We made about 2,500 gallons this time. And it sold out. So then on the, in 1975... We had a little bit of a serendipity, I guess you'd call it. We were making the white Zinfandel. We, we decided to increase production again. Only this time we got a stuck fermentation. And we were left with a little uh, about 2 2.5% residual sugar in the wine. And it had a little pink color to it. The first white Zins were almost clear. They were very, very light tinge to them. So we said, well, it tastes really good. Let's try it. And that really, that was like letting the horses out of the barn. So 75 from 72 is when the real 
whites. That's where the color came. Right. The residual 75. sugar, which I think a lot of Americans like blended reds with residual. They like right. whites with residual. Exactly. So 75, you get back in the game and... And then it's like a runaway team of horses. It was unbelievable. We were, we were in. We couldn't afford to, you know, to expand. So we kept we we kept producing as much as we could. And we started doubling our production every year. And it, it really by the by the late seventies and early eighties, it really started to take off. And suddenly, we found ourselves becoming a one wine winery. Here we were, right. you know, uh, we were still making reds in. 90% of your in. case output, yeah. right? We were making reds in, and we were selling it, but we were making this boatload of this white Zinfandel. And a lot of the our, our um, competitors, or you call it, our, our, our uh, other wineries were saying, you're bastardizing a grape. You're, you're taking a red grape, and you're making a white, and that's, that's, that's wrong. But then as time passed and they saw the success that we were having, these same people started making whites and vanilla as well. So suddenly, by the, by the mid to late 80s, you had 30 or 40 different white Zinfandels on the market. And the, and the category itself began to just accelerate beyond belief to the point where at one point uh, in the mid-90s, uh, early early mid '90s, there was 20 million cases of white Zinfandel being produced and sold every year. Wow! But you had market share. And we the had whole we time. had the market share, yeah. but there were other players. And then eventually, a lot of the players fell out, and uh, it became basically a two or three producers producing a lot, in which right. we still dominated. Pull the curtain back for me for a second, because you were on the business side. I was on the you business. You were side. the marketing, sales, distribution. Right. I mean, you saw this thing from a mistake to, you know, the color coming in in 75. Yeah, I wouldn't call it a mistake, but it was well, I, not I, a mistake. I, I yeah, it, I, I call it luck. I'll take that back, yeah, right? I call it luck. So, I, I mean, you were instrumental in exposing, you know, this country to white Zinfandel. Uh, yeah, and I, I mean, think. I mean, you were probably working, what, 15 hours a day? Yeah, we were working uh, at least seven days a week, sometimes not 15 hours, but a lot. But uh, there was a time when we were actually bottling the wine. It, it, when, the, when the cases came, one of my jobs was also running the bottling line. And w- the cases would come off the bottling line, we put them right, right on, on the, the truck, truck, and they'd go right to the wholesaler. We call it freeway aging. Uh, but what happened was, is not only did we create a lot of white Zinfandel drinkers, but we created a lot of wine drinkers. Right. A lot of people who didn't drink wine started drinking wine because of white Zinfandel. Now, many of them moved on to other, other varieties. Right. It was a gateway wine. It was a gateway wine. But still, a lot of people, you know, to this day, white Zinfandel is as premium as it gets. They still, you know, right. we still sell millions of cases of white well, Zinfandel. I read somewhere that, you know, for Sutter, it's not something that died off substantially. No. You, no this it, is still a very we're not, popular, we're, large selling. We're not selling as much as we did in our heyday, right. but... We still have, have, you know, White Zimbabwe is still a big part of our portfolio. Right. But something else it gave us, it gave us the opportunity to reintroduce a lot of the varietals that we used to produce and that we, when we started specializing in Zimbabwe, we kind of pushed to the side. Well, we started re- reintroducing, and because we, be, we uh, the power of the brand. You had the clout. In the marketplace, shelf we got, space, we consumer Cabernet, awareness, Chardonnay, right. all the other varieties, and suddenly we became 
a, a national brand rather than a one wine winery. Right. Which ultimately is, you know, where you want to get to. Exactly. This episode is presented by LMT, the hospitality industry's preferred source for tabletop and more. From their New York City headquarters, LMT provides expertise and uniquely curated product opportunities to restaurants and hotels nationwide. Whether it's china, glass, and silver, to smallwares and equipment, LMT's approach to tasteful design and product knowledge is simply unmatched. Learn more at littlemtucker.com. This episode is also presented by Forever Cheese, a passion for great taste. Forever Cheese sources the highest quality and most unique cheeses and other products from Italy, Spain, Portugal, and Croatia, and imports them to the United States, the majority under the Mitica brand. If it's Mitica, it's got to be incredible. Learn more at forevercheese.com. Pour a drink for a harbor, a drink for a sailor. His body's now drift in the break. In the... All right, so move ahead a little. So that's buzzing along. 80s is going well. Yeah. But down the road, you expand. Um, you know, the family name is Trincaro. Nobody really knows that because it's Sutter. Mm-hmm. Anybody who is interested or peaks maybe realizes it's the Trincaro family. But down the road, you think about launching a luxury wine portfolio. Tell me how that evolved. And well, started. okay, we we had already started to diversify. We, we bought a winery up in Amador County, the Montevino Winery, which we renamed Terra de Oro. And uh, we, we began to develop other brands within our portfolio. And then in uh, 1995, it was our first vintage, we decided, you know, we, we need to honor my father passed away in 1982, and we wanted to honor him for getting us into the business. So we decided, you know what, we're going to make small lots of very high-end wines, and we're going to call it Trincaro and we'll, we'll na- in honor of my father. Well, we, we did. We, the first few vintages we produced at our, uh, at our Sutter Home Winery, we had a separate right. section. We call it a winery within a winery. We had a separate winemaker and everything, and the, and the wines were very, very well accepted, but very limited, limited production. We got to the point in the early 2000s where we said, you know what, we need, we need a winery, a, a place to associate with the name Trincaro. So we started searching around the valley for a good spot, and coincidentally, <clears throat> coincidentally, Folia Dew Winery came up for sale, and in 2005, we closed the deal on, on that, and we completely destroyed everything that was there and rebuilt a whole new winery, a whole new uh, visitor center, and a whole new tasting room. And that became and that became the Trincaro. Yeah. So that was 2004? That was 2005 Five. when we bought it. Our first vintage at that winery was 2007. Now, just for a second, Folio do part of the that's part of, family well, portfolio. Yeah, along with buying the wine, the property, we got the brand Folio do, right. and we got another interesting brand called Menage a Trois, which is 
and, wildly popular. And, and, uh, delicious I, blended wines, very popular. I talked to our sales guys, and I said, you know, I like this name. It's got a catchy name. I said, what do you think? If we put good juice in the bottle, you think he said, we can run with it, boss. And, and they did. We put good, good wine in there. We put uh, $20 wine. We charged 12 for it. And, uh, and the, the brand took off. It's, it's over a 3 million case brand yeah, now for it's, us. It's, it's still very popular. Um, why did it take you so long to launch a luxury brand? Uh, I think mainly because we were just, I mentioned before, it was like having a runaway team of horses. You know, We were just trying to catch up with demand right. for the products that we had. Right. And we never got to the point where, uh, well, a lot of it had to do with finances, you know. We needed to make money in order to, to do the do the project. But my father always told us, never take a step longer than your stride. So we never wanted to <clears throat> get to the point where we owed so much money. Right. We couldn't we couldn't be successful. Somewhat conservative. <clears throat> yeah, know. we saw other wineries fail doing that. Calculated your steps, uh, but. Um, there's a lot of association and acquisition. People know Sutter. They may now know Trinquero, but we just mentioned Folia Du, Menage a Trois. There are other brands. Absolutely. You know, we have are, Sea Glass. We have, we have developed a lot of our own brands. We have purchased brands, and we have developed partnership brands. Right. Uh, we, we partnered with Joel Gott and Gott Wines. They have been Joel enormously a, successful. A, a terrific Great value, well-made right. wine. Now, you know, there is a connection there because we bought Montevina Winery from uh, Joel Gott's grandfather. His father and, and his grandfather started the Montevina Winery in Amador County. And we ended up, so there was a connection there. Right. We've also since, we've, we've purchased the Nyers, Nyers brand, Nyers. Uh, which is a very high-end. And, and what we needed to do with all these high-end brands is we needed to develop a marketing leg separate from, you know, our, our big brands. Right. And uh, we, we established our heritage co collection, which my son Carlo heads up. Nice. And that's, is that, that's part of Trincaro Family Estates? That's part that? of Trincaro okay. Family Estates, okay. right. Um, what, you guys practice sustainability. Yes. I mean, it's a... There's a, a lot of nice things about, you know, Trincaro and the world around it. Um, one of the th things that you've moved towards is sustainability, philanthropy. But talk to me about sustainability. It's such a tough thing for a large operation. What does sustainability mean to, well, you know, the well, Trincaro Well, obviously properties? in the vineyards it means we do a minimum amount of, of uh, uh, non-organic work. Uh, we we were pioneers in growing uh, um, uh, uh, crops in, uh, in between the grapevines that attract predatory cover crops. Cover stuff crops, like that. right? Yeah. That's what I was trying to say. Yeah, and uh, and uh, so that that part of it was good. But in in terms of the production, we saw years ago the amount of recyclable materials that you know. First of all, wine the actual wine production is very um, eco-friendly. When we crush grapes, everything is you. We use the wine, obviously, right. but, the, but the pumice, what's left afterwards, that's put back into the vineyards or back into agriculture, creates uh, composting, composting. 
and it, it it all goes back. So, in in I guess it was the early '90s, we we started a program at the winery for recycling, and what we did is we recycled everything, and with the money that we got from recycling, we established uh, an employee in need fund. It's a fund that's separate, a separate bank account and everything that we keep for any emergencies that our employee might have that needs needs help. And recently, with the, with the Napa Fire. fires, we had eight people lose everything, and we were able to help them bridge the time between when their house was destroyed and when they could, they could rebuild. So through sustainability, you were able to do things that created revenue, right. where you created a fund, where you helped better your culture, help your employees and then really last year in a time of need um how did that affect you guys was it mostly by way of employees it was mostly any mostly employees we had one vineyard up on our one of our vineyards at atlas peak uh we had uh, most of our crop was already in but we did have we did have some uh grapes left up on on atlas peak that wasn't damaged by the fire but was sprayed with the retardant that the airplanes dropped So we couldn't we couldn't use those grapes, but you know, in the grand scheme of thing, it was a very minimal loss, right. and uh, so we we consider ourselves very lucky. Um, another thing about sustainability, though, we we uh, we entered in with uh, with our Trinity Oaks brand. For every bottle of Trinity Oaks is sold, we plant a tree, and we planted over what eleven million trees, I believe, wow. so far. Yeah. Wow. Um, last question on sustainability. Do you think, take Napa, do you think your fellow winemakers and growers have an eye towards sustainability or they're not there? Oh, I think, I think they are. It's getting yeah, absolutely, better? Absolutely. I think everybody is conscious. It's about the environment. We but re- are they know, acting? Yeah, they are. They are. Fast enough? Well... Okay. There's Fast an awareness. Can, there is an awareness. More work can be done. You know, we're farmers. We right. realize that you, know, you got to take care of the land. I right. think the Dust Bowl, you know, in the 30s taught us that. Right. Um, it's, it's nice to hear that you have an eye towards sustainability. Um, I want to talk about Trincaro Family Estates because in front of us are a couple of wines. We'll take a quick taste. But on the Trincaro label, which the family name is on, um, that is, I guess you could say, your luxury brand, your higher end. It is. It is you're our making, luxury brand. You're making a bunch of different wines. It's not, you know, one or two or three showings. Right. You know, talk to me quickly about the wines. Okay, what we making. did, we we wanted it to be estate bottles, so we had to go out and get vineyards, okay. right? <laughs> and by the way, we started, I told you we didn't have vineyards in the early days. We started buying vineyards in the early 80s, and today we farm over 11,000 acres of vineyard. So when but, you bought in the '80s, was that an eye towards later on? Actually, it was. It was a. What it was, was the a, reason? It was a deal we couldn't refuse. Okay, it was so it a, came up. We bought Napa Valley acreage, planted at that time. It was 1983, I believe, uh, for eight thousand dollars an acre, and and uh, you just couldn't. What's the market <laughs> now? Know, just give people an idea. At least three hundred thousand right, an acre. It's crazy. So, uh, the first vineyard we bought actually was the Mary's Vineyard. Right. Uh, and the Mary, who's Blanc, Mary? That was my mother. Your mom, right? Yeah, named after my mother, and it uh, it uh, 
acreage up on Bennett Lane in Calistoga in the northern end the of the area. valley. And, and the Sauvignon Blanc from there is fantastic. So we've, we've got that. But as time progressed, we bought vineyards outside of the valley to, to fuel our Sutter home. But then when we, when we started to develop this brand, we said we need acreage in the valley. So we farm over, over 200 acres in the Napa Valley. We have hillside vineyards. We have valley floor vineyards. And uh, we initially started producing single vineyard estate wines. And we continue to do that. Do you blend but, some? They're not all well, site we, specific? We didn't, we didn't initially. But then we found that the retail, you know, out in the, in the consumers were confused with all these different vineyards. So what we decided was we'll keep the single vineyard for people in our wine club and people who come to the winery. Right. And then we developed three brands, uh, three wines that we are actually four with the Marys. We, we sell the Marys. We sell the Marios. We have the BRV, which is a blend of the Cabernet vineyards from our hillside. And that stands for Bob, Roger, Vera, the next generation. The three kids. And then we have the Forte, which is a blend, a blend of Malbec, Cabernet that we, and those are the three wines that we sell out wholesale. Right. So how many showings is that? That sounds like seven or eight different bottlings you're making. For, for the, for the single vineyards? Yeah. 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 And you acquired land as recently as when? Well, we just bought a couple of vineyards over in yeah. Sonoma County okay. for our for our Folia Dew brand. So it just keeps going on. Yeah, well, you know, um, we we keep our eyes open. If something something looks uh, always looks good, we would jump on it. Um, we're going to wrap up, but I just want to ask you a couple of things. Sure. Um, there was just a book published, Trincaro Wine and the American Dream. Right. Tell me quickly about that book. Well, basically, it's a it's a book. It's a I call it a coffee table book. It's very nice, nicely done, and it, it basically traces our family's heritage from the early days in Italy all the way through to the what present you day. started telling is right, laid exactly. out in detail, exactly <laughs> to the and present. It, and right? it has beautiful photographs of our vineyards, of our people, of the family, and uh, it's it's really a, a pleasant read. And, so that's uh, Trincaro wine and the American dream. Yeah. Um, couple other things you relinquished your position as ceo right right so what are you doing now uh i'm the, still the chairman of the board well i know you, you know? i forgot to mention <coughs> you're the chairman yeah, but, but uh <coughs> pardon me <coughs> uh, no i still uh i still keep an office in, in, at our headquarters okay. i go in uh, you're around two or three times a week when i'm not playing golf just to catch up on what's what's going on and making sure that uh uh, you know the, the the ship's still going in the right direction, right. Right. and uh, we, we have a go. we have a wonderful CEO and president Bob Torkelson who's the first non-family. He's not a family member, but he's like a brother to me, right. a little a younger brother, I should say, and and uh, he is uh, he's one in a million, and okay. um, I, I I'm hoping and uh, I think I've got it set up that he'll be around for the next ten years. Great. And maybe by that time, one of my sons might be ready to move in. That's right. You have three sons. Yeah. And are they all, or a couple of them are in the business? Two are in the business. Two are in the business. And one, he's not sure yet. So. Right. And he's got that option. He'll come around. Well, he doesn't have to. That's I, the whole thing. We tell all our kids, you know, if you want to be in the business, you got to be qualified for what you do. Right. And the opportunity is right. here. because you have the name. But if you mean... don't want to be in the business, you're still a family member. You're still a shareholder in the company. That's not a bad thing either. 
Um, two more things. I have a thing called the wine list where I ask my guests about their preferences. You and I are going to buzz through that quickly because you're a wine guy. You've been around a long time, so I have curiosities. But let's tell everybody where they could find more info about Trincaro Wines. Well, yep. so, Trincaro Family Estates right. has a site. What's you just Google it, and we've got... Really? Uh, so it's T-R-I-N-C-H-E-R-O, if you didn't Trincaro, know Trincaro, Napa Valley. Trincaro, Napa Valley. And you can get the story, find out about the wines and everything else. All right. Indulge me. Quickly answer these questions. It's called the wine list. We do it with every guest. <laughs> okay. All right. The first question we ask everybody is, what are you drinking now? And when I say that, sometimes it changes seasonally or a friend drops off some stuff. Is there anything? I, I would say I would say any bold red. Okay, so you're the bold red guy. What's Roger's favorite wine and food pairing? Do you have one? Mm. Is there something that comes back, or you eat something more with wine and uh, other things? You know what? I'm I've got a sweet tooth. You do. I do. And so I, what goes with sweet stuff? Uh, wine I like wise? Moscato and strawberries. Okay, <laughs> you sound like a rap singer. Um, <laughs> all right. <laughs> Your favorite, and this is not to incriminate anybody. This is more to tap in. Your favorite wine restaurant and or bar. So I guess we should stay up by you. Well, Who's doing it well? Who knows the wine, has the selection? You know, Boy, there's a lot of them. That, that mention would be, a few. That would be tough. Well, the French Laundry comes to mind. Right, great um, wine program. Um, there's a, there's a new, uh, new, new place just opened up across from our winery called Brasswood. Brasswood. And they have a okay. wonderful selection. Nice. Uh, in town, in, in, in the town of St. Helena, there's a place called Cook. Cook, okay. That's very good. And uh, most, the thing is, in Napa Valley, in, in the heart of the Napa Valley, most wine, restaurants have tremendous right. wine lists. Right, So it's, uh, it's difficult to pick the best. And Don they, Giovanni they, is another one in Napa. Great, you know, big yeah. hangout for the wine yeah. people, great wine yeah. list. Um, all right, do you have a favorite all-time wine? Is there a wine yeah. that to this day, what is it? White Zinfandel. Okay. You know and I'll what? stand by that. Amen to that. <laughs> All right, we ask this question to everybody. It, may, it shouldn't be hard to you, and I think the answer is kind of obvious. Um, a lot of our listeners are younger, mm -hmm. and they're into wine, but they don't have the money. So I always ask my guests, and a lot of guests are sommeliers, winemakers, and all that. So let me tap into you. Tell me in your mind the best wine around 15 bucks. Give me a red or a white. You can give me a varietal. You can give me I would a say, region. What, what do you think? And it doesn't just have to be, you know, Napa or whatever. I, I, would, I, would, I would say and you, you explore, probably make some of these. Exp, uh, I would say Menage a Trois. Right. Uh, we just released a, a, a Cabernet called Decadence. That's Under the uh, Menage label? Under the Menage label. It's fantastic. And for a white wine... The uh, it's called Menage Gold. It's a Chardonnay. It's unbelievable. So there you go. I mean, best wine around fifteen bucks, a little higher. You're making it. It's pretty well known. Absolutely. All right, Roger. You didn't expect me to plug somebody no, else's wine. No, 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 no. no. Admirable job on that. We buzzed through it. <laughs> um, I want to thank you for sitting down with me. You have a great story, and I'm glad um, you shared it with us. Well, thank, thank you, you so for much for having us. me. I thank appreciate you. it. <laughs> 
you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at samatthegrapenation.com. That's samatthegrapenation.com. Follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation. Follow us on Instagram at sbenruby. And you can now follow hashtags, so follow the hashtag The Grape Nation. And on Twitter at benruby. Also subscribe to The Grape Nation podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Write a review if you enjoy the show. Thank you to our guest, Roger Trinquero. Thank you to our engineer, Matt, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.